From Lawson Media, this is Building a Unicorn, the show exploring what it takes to build a big global business. I'm Christopher Lawson. Design is vital for the success of any digital business, yet for many years, creating great artwork for your website or your newsletters required hiring an expert. Someone who could navigate the artistic world, who knew programs like Photoshop or Illustrator, and could realise the vision that you had in mind. But with the increasing push to democratise technology, it was only inevitable that design would become more accessible. Cameron Adams is the co-founder and chief product officer of Canva, a company that makes it easy for anyone to create their own artwork online in minutes. Canva is a design platform which allows anyone to design anything, which is a pretty broad statement, but essentially we're bringing design to people who haven't been able to access it before. We believe that design is incredibly powerful and that it can let people do things that they wouldn't ordinarily be able to do. And by putting a really simple tool like Canva into their hands, we've seen people be able to start their first business, grow their charity, connect with people that they wouldn't have been able to connect with before. Giving them the ability to create great visual design has these outsized effects. Cameron's journey to co-founding one of Australia's largest tech unicorns really started in Melbourne in the 80s and 90s, as the computer industry was starting to boom. In a place called Montelbert, which is close to Box Hill, there's a big Chinese population there. Uh, I'm half Chinese, half Australian, so grew up in two different worlds. Cameron's dad owned a local computer shop and his mother was a teacher. And Cameron has vivid memories of being surrounded by technology from an early age. My first interaction with technology, there's probably two key moments. One that's not a precise moment, but I always remember sitting next to my brother watching him play computer games. So he's five and a half years older than me, uh, a lot more developed. So he would be able to play the games that I had no hope of mastering. And I just remember sitting there watching him play games like Xenon 2 and Load Runner and Ultima and a bunch of others. Uh, so that's like a really fuzzy memory. My first distinct memory of encountering technology is when we got our first modem. And that was like a 9600 KPS uh, thing that made that horrible screeching noise when you connected. (laughs) And we eventually wound up getting this like 20 meter long extension cable so I could have the modem in my room and play Doom on some far-flung BBS at at the same time. In the early 90s, the world was only beginning to learn about the power of personal computing. The internet was just coming online and not that many households had their own PCs. But having a dad who worked in computers offered a significant opportunity to engage with technology. I was very fortunate in that sense because my dad ran a computer shop. So he actually spent half his time selling computers out of that shop. And the other half of his time, um, him and his partner created this software that was actually bookkeeping software for tradespeople. So your plumber, your electrician, they'd be able to send their invoices off, keep track of all their bills, etc. through this software. Uh, And I did spend a large part growing up in that computer store. I remember me and my brother taking computer games off the shelf and carefully slicing open open the uh, shrink wrapping so we could load the computer onto our game and then put the game back on the shelf without having to pay for it. Um, But yeah, I think that kind of seeped into my DNA and I just, uh, you know, technology was around all the time. And I didn't specifically like start coding at the age of six or anything, but computers were always a presence and we were very comfortable with technology. As you went through school and having that exposure to technology from from a young age, was there a point where you realized like, this is something that I am really interested in, that I want to pursue, that this my career is going to be somehow related to technology? I don't think there was, there wasn't any, in high school, there wasn't a direct 
technology influence on me. Um, so, you know, it was brilliant for playing games. In order to play the games, you had to write your own batch files in order to mem- manage the memory so that the game could actually play. But I can't remember a moment through primary or high school where I was like, yes, coding on computers or creating stuff for computers was something that I wanted to do. Probably had a stronger creative streak through, through my school days. Uh, so drawing, I remember uh, ended up drawing a bunch of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and I did them on a bunch of cards and ended up taking them to school and probably my first business transaction was selling one of those cards to one of the other students for like $2. So yeah, I focused more on the creative side of it and I think it wasn't until university when I started getting more heavily into computer science and understanding how to create the code that runs experiences on technology that I really started to think about what I could create specifically for computers, but mostly with an eye to uh, allowing people to interact with it. So what can you do through technology that helps people? Throughout high school, Cameron developed an interest in design. And as he started playing with some of the early graphic design software, he began to realise it was something that he wanted to pursue. Yeah, late in high school, I got my hands on a piece of software called Electric Cat, which was actually like a Photoshop beta, (laughs) and started messing around with that, manipulating people's photos, etc., and got really interested in it. And that was the first moment when I thought graphic design might be something that I could do. But it was a bit too late. I like missed all the graphic design classes and didn't have what it was cried to get into it in university. Um, So... Uh, in university, you know, I did the kind of more traditional degrees of law and science, and uh, they weren't particularly grabbing me. So I spent a lot of my spare time hanging around the newspaper and finding a way that I could be more creative, but not in a in a fixed university kind of way. So working on the university newspaper, I got to write, I got to design covers, got to do photo layouts, and I did learn quite a few skills through there, which actually let me segue into a real job, uh, I think in my second year of uni, where I actually became a fully fully paid graphic designer. What was the company like that you were working for, or were you just doing freelance yeah, it was, a really, it was a really great company to join, and I was lucky to kind of stumble across it. It was a company called Hearn Scientific Software, who was a software reseller. They took lots of really technical software like SPSS, stats software, chemistry software, and sold it on to academics. Um, and they would produce this catalogue of all that software. The catalogue was this mammoth effort every year where we'd just pull these all-nighters to get the print proofs, check them over, make sure all the layout and the copy was fine. And it was a really fascinating company because it was run by this guy who is, you know, fairly old to me as a university student, but he surrounded himself with university students. So pretty much everyone that worked there was third, fourth year university but he managed to collect a really interesting group of people, like a, a medical student to postgrads who eventually turned out to be Rhodes Scholars, and uh, actually someone who I also brought into Canva um, and spent a lot of time with called Michael Gakoulis. And I think altogether, we were a fascinating bunch of people who he saw some promise in and decided to let us work at his company. And I think the returns that he's seen on that over the years of these people going and starting their own businesses, moving overseas, performing really well academically as well as entrepreneurially, it was a really fascinating place to be. Did you know that that was what you wanted to do, that you wanted to move into design? Uh, Definitely design. Mm. So through that five years of university, I figured out what I liked and what I didn't like. And Mm. design was the only constant thread in there that let me come up with new ideas, execute upon them and push them out into the world. I think looking at what a lawyer does and being part of a legal system or even a law firm, you know, it's very much a cog in this big wheel of tradition essentially you're not creating a whole lot of new stuff in there and you're not stretching the boundaries of anything Uh, and looking at the engineering side that side didn't appeal to me because there's a bit too much rigor in the actual creation of it so connecting the creative sides and the actual building sides was really important to me Cameron studied computer science and law at the University of Melbourne and he graduated in 2001. 
For the next year, he continued working for Hearn, the company he worked at through university. But on the side, he was taking on freelance clients, and it eventually got to the point where he couldn't handle all his clients while still working at his job. So he quit and went full-time into his own business, and he was helping a lot of customers design their websites. You know, building CMSs so that they could update it themselves, lots of marketing campaigns, had clients like NEC. I actually had an interesting client called Atlassian. Um, I ended up building their first marketing website, and that kind of segued into a bunch of product work for them as a contractor, but never signed up full-time with Atlassian. Um, But yeah, kind of flew up from Melbourne to Sydney quite a few times for them. Um, Met Mike Cannon-Brooks and uh, worked with him on a bunch of ideas for their website. I think that was back when they were like, 40 people that were still in this office on George Street. In 2007, Cameron moved to Sydney to be with his girlfriend, and he was soon recommended for a contract working for Google. And I'd applied to Google a bunch of times as an engineer um, because I wanted to try out my front-end code chops and never got in. Like, I never got past the second interview or something. The technical bar was just way too high. Um, and someone recommended me for a contract design job on this rather strange and mysterious project, and I kind of popped in to see what it was all about, and they had a brief chat with me, and then they're like, yeah, can you do six months' work for us? So I started working for them then, kind of through a back door without having to do any interviews. That secret project that Cameron was going to be working on was called Google Wave, and it was this vision to redesign email as we know it. At the time, it was so secretive that only a very select few people in the company knew what was going on. Yeah. So I remember walking in on the first day of my contract and went to reception. I said, I'm here to see Lars Rasmussen, who's one of the founders of Google Maps. And they just started out on this new project that was extremely secretive. I walked into the office Uh, Someone directed me over to this meeting room that was entirely blacked out. So all the meeting rooms at Google at the time had glass walls so you could look in and see who was there, wave at them. This one was entirely blacked out and uh, they knocked on the door, someone opened it and this big waft of sweat just hit me because the the atmosphere in the room was like pure hack. Uh, It was three engineers in there, Lars, Jens, uh, and another guy called uh, Adam. And... They had been working on Google Wave for a few months and trying to put together this proof of concept um, and they needed someone to figure out what the experience should look like. Uh, so I spent the next six months working with them, understanding what they were building and building, uh, you know, designing the UI that would eventually become Google Wave. They were still in like super prototype mode, so they hadn't got funding for that project inside Google yet. And they were building that prototype to prove to Larry, Sergey, and Eric, who was the CEO at the time, that they should get a team devoted to it. And they ended up presenting that prototype to the two founders and Eric and managed to get you know backing behind it. They got like a headcount of 50 engineers overnight. And Eric Schmidt said, who did the design for this? They're like, oh, this guy called Cameron. And Eric was like, you should hire him. Uh, So that's how I became full-time at Google. So you were the only UI designer working on the product? Yeah, it was like probably the strangest team makeup I've I've had in my career. Uh, So there's one designer that was me. There were four product engineers, two founders, and uh, 50, 55 engineers all working on different parts of Google Wave. What's it like working in essentially this sort of like small startup inside this enormous company? It was an amazing vibe. Like the team pulled together, were really cohesive and really behind the mission. But it was also an awkward arrangement working within this super big, you know, semi-political organisation where people are clamouring for ideas, trying to get their idea heard, funded, resourced, all this kind of thing. So there's always a lot of pressure on us, I think, to succeed. It was a bit of an experiment by the leaders at the time because I think they felt that innovation at Google had kind of stagnated a bit. So looking for a product to leapfrog everything that was happening. 
Um, so like Google Docs and Sheets uh, and Gmail at the time didn't really speak to one another. They were still separate products. A few of them had been acquired uh, from outside. Um, so there's a bit of legacy and, and they didn't really cooperate with one another. So Google Wave was an attempt to both leapfrog that technologically as well as organizationally. You know, we put together a really compelling vision, I think, but didn't really nail the use case and the audience that we wanted to go after. Uh, so we ended up just trying to make this product that was for everyone and could satisfy the needs of a parent, satisfy the needs of a business person, satisfy the needs of a gamer. And we crammed as many features as we could in there, but made it really difficult for anyone to latch onto the product and really stick with it. Google first demoed Wave in May of 2009 and soon started sending out beta invites to people that were interested. It became widely available in 2010, although never had the kind of traction that Google was looking for. It was radically different and people struggled to transition away from email. So in 2011, Google shut down the project. Cameron stayed on for a while, but eventually decided to leave and build a new startup. Working on that project was very, uh, you know, experimental, entrepreneurial in a sense. And a lot of the people on the team were, you know, really big risk takers who could see a vision and just wanted to try and achieve it. Quite a few of the team left after it got shut down. Uh, there was a bit of like political agitation around it shut down as well. There was Google Plus happening at the same time. Mm -hmm. They were clamoring for resources. Quite a few of the engineers ended up getting put on the Google Plus team. Um, I stuck around at Google for a little while after that, probably like six months or so, and tried to find projects where I could add value and that uh, were thinking as big as Google Wave. Um, found it a bit hard at the time, so ended up leaving Google to start another startup called Fluent, which focused in the same area. It was around communications and, and reinventing email. Wasn't quite as radical as Google Wave. Uh, but me and two other engineers from Google left to pursue that. Why, after working on this on this product for Google and like seeing Google launch it and it not do as well as what people would have hoped, did you then feel like you should go and do something similar again as a startup? I think you know we as engineers and designers felt that there are decisions made that we didn't agree with and that we could correct those decisions, rightly or wrongly. Bring it back a step, on Google Wave, we found it really hard to move people off email. Um, you could invite them into the Google Wave space, they could play around, but they'd always retreat to the safety of email. Um, so we kind of looked at that and we're like, okay, if they want to stay in email, what can we do within that sphere that lets them stay with their email program, still contact their other email contacts, but have a much better experience on top of that. So we tried to build a product that would tackle that. I think also we've we found that at Google, you know, if you build a product there, it's very different to building it as a startup. You know, we our target I think for the first year was that by the end of the first year we should have 10 million users, um, which is just insane numbers for a for a typical startup. And when we did get a bit of success in a particular market, it was really hard for us to drill down into that because. Google doesn't really make products for niches. They make products that have really wide consumer adoption. But as a startup, you know, you're free to pivot, you're free to experiment. Uh, you can start off with a small audience and cater to it and grow it and build it into something much larger. You don't have to have that massive success from day one. All of that, we thought, played into our advantage. But startups are never easy. And it didn't take long before Cameron was on to his next adventure. And right after this break, the story of Canva. After his time at Google, Cameron decided to go out on his own working on a new startup called Fluent, and it was a rethinking of email. However, the startup struggled with raising capital, and it soon became clear that things weren't going to work out. And it was around this time he was introduced to Melanie Perkins, who is now the CEO at Canva. Although back then, Canva was only just a thought bubble. 
I think with Fluent, uh, it was a year of year of my time, and it was like a whirlwind year. We went from having no product to building the product to going for a round of funding, dealing with investors, uh, and dealing with this wave of users that wanted to come on and use the product. We met a few of these essential barriers, and I could kind of see the writing on the wall for that project. And it was around that time that. Lars, my old boss from Google Wave, introduced me to this woman called Melanie, um, and he wanted me to go in and just chat to them about technology because they were running a school yearbook business at the time. It was run on Adobe Flex. Um, you know, Flash was about to be killed, uh, so they needed to figure out how they would take this yearbook platform and turn it into something that actually worked in an internet browser. Melanie Perkins and Cliff O'Brett had been working on this school yearbook business called Fusion Books, and they needed help to turn it into something more interactive. Cameron was inspired by Melanie's vision for democratising design, and while he was initially providing advice, it didn't take long for him to go all in. Yeah, so um, I went in and met Melanie and, you know, we had a broad chat about technology and HTML5 and JavaScript and what they could do. And she also started to tell me about the bigger vision she had beyond school yearbooks. So, you know, democratising design, bring it to, her, to the entire world. Uh, and that really captured my imagination from my background in graphic design, my background in creating creative tools. I wasn't quite interested at the time. We were still uh, trying to raise funds for Fluent. But a couple months later, when, when it turned out we wouldn't be able to get funding, that idea kept coming back into my head of creating this design platform that could really be used by anyone in the world. So I got back in touch with Mel and asked them where they were up to. Um, and they were still trying to find the right team that could get this off the ground. So the three of us banded together. We started talking to a bunch of investors. Uh, they found the story really compelling. Now that we had this three-sided partnership that could build upon the vision, work with the technology, understand the design, and it really formed this solid three-legged stool which would allow us to uh, start creating Canva. The team founded the company in July of 2012 and spent the next several months working to lock in funding and build out the product. By December, they'd gotten the funding they needed to complete development, and in July of 2013, they launched the first version of Canva. The product was pretty fully formed. We were, we were fairly against launching just an MVP. We got lots of feedback over the previous year, like, when are you launching, when are you launching? You need to get something in front of customers. You know, we knew what we wanted to launch and we knew that we wanted it to be a great experience. And I think that, over the years, has been a mantra of ours that we need to deliver a great experience to our customers. So we launched with a pretty fairly formed design tool um, that anyone in a marketing department could take and actually produce something useful out of. Um, so it wasn't like we launched a half-assed product that we just iterated upon. We did do lots of user testing, made sure that people understood what Canva did, that they had a really easy onboarding time, that they could get stuff done without too many bugs. And I think we were pretty proud of the product, I think, when we launched it. We still knew it had its flaws and features we needed to build, but it was definitely something that we were willing to get people to pay money for. And how are you getting the word out? Uh, just scrambling for as many channels as you can. So you work your personal connections. Over the years, we'd built up like a wait list of people that were interested in the idea. Uh, we chatted to investors, chatted countless people along the journey who you'd tell the idea to and they'd be interested and be like, oh, tell me more when it actually launches. Um, so you have that email list of people that you just bombard. We also started approaching people in our early demographics. So bloggers were really important for us, um, social media marketers. Social media was just hitting its stride at the time, uh, particularly with visual media. So photographs were just becoming popular on Facebook as opposed to textual updates. And people were looking for more visual design tools that could help them do that. Um, so talking to those customers, uh, getting them to use it, monitoring Twitter and Facebook and pinging people, building up relationships. Like, we did whatever we had to to find those early users. And was it, like, instantly successful? Were people 
Do you remember when the first person just sort of like signed up and started using it? I remember we launched at like uh, 10 p.m. on a Monday because we had lined up a bit of uh, press for it. We got like a TechCrunch article and and a few other um, tech press articles. And we put a media embargo in place. It was 10 p.m. when we you know finally flipped off the sign-up page and let people actually into the product. And we're expecting this massive rush of users just coming in. We'd sent out 10,000 emails to our wait list. Uh, and we'd set up the Google Analytics dashboard on our monitors around the office that we could just watch all this data flooding in. First articles went live. We saw like one drip and there was one user coming in. And then you'd wait like two minutes and then another user would drip in. And I think it ramped up to maybe like two a minute and then drop back down to like one every five minutes. So it was a bit of an anticlimax and we went to sleep that night feeling like we'd achieved something we'd launched, but not that it had been something beyond our wildest dreams. But fortunately, you could just gradually see the growth. And that's the amazing thing about growth is it doesn't have to double overnight. You just add a percent on every day and every week and every month. And we saw our numbers grow from 500 signups in a week to 2,000 in a week to 5,000. Uh, by the end of the first year, we'd had about 750,000 people sign up for the product. And, you know, that rapidly grew. Was there a point through that that you realized that this was actually going to be, was going to be big, that it was going to be successful? I don't think there's like one moment where the light bulb comes on, but there's there's little micro moments in there. So I remember getting the first email from someone who we'd never heard of before, um, someone who we didn't have a relationship with, and he just wrote to us to say how useful the product was, how freeing it was. And then we got another email from someone in South America who was running an orphanage. And that's probably the moment where it really hit me that... Canva wasn't just this design tool that let people move text around the screen. It actually helped them change their lives and other people's lives. Um, and they wrote in to tell us how much they use Canva for their newsletters and all the communications they use to tell you know, possible foster parents about new kids that had come into the orphanage, about the stories of kids that had moved on. And it's extremely moving. And it's from a place halfway around the world, someone who just totally out of the blue decided to contact us that was one of the most you know, heart-moving moments I've had. Canva was a global product from day one. The team made sure all the branding and messaging spoke to a global market. And they saw success in other English-speaking countries like the US, which quickly became their largest market segment. Although in 2016, a focus on internationalising the product changed the demographics completely. The patterns have totally changed, um, particularly as we've looked more at how to truly become a global product. So in 2016, we made the decision to start localizing our product, or internationalizing rather. And that meant that we needed to translate everything inside the app. We needed to set up the engineering processes to allow translation to happen whenever we added strings. Um, And we needed to start looking into the content that people in different countries would want to use inside Canva. By the end of 2016, we were in eight different languages, mostly some of the fairly easy ones like Spanish and German and French that vaguely look like English. So you don't have to deal with too many technical problems. And that was really the beginning of seeing our demographic shift. In 2017, we just set ourselves the pretty crazy goal of being in 100 different languages. And we managed to hit that on December 24, 2017. And since then, it has seen a massive shift in where Canva's used, what it's used for. The US is still like a really big market for us but it's also a more mature market in terms of you know, technology penetration, 
the amount of spending money people have, whereas some of our other really fast-growing markets like Brazil or Indonesia, you know, they focus a lot more on mobile. You know, a lot of people there have Android phones instead of iPhone phones, which is the reverse in the United States. Um, so you're dealing with different technology stacks, uh, different needs of people, you know, people on the go, people wanting to work on a small screen, um, and different ways that you can monetize those audiences and serve them best with the product. And right after this break, Canva begins expanding. But growing quickly can create some challenging problems. This is Building a Unicorn, I'm Christopher Lawson. Canvas started their journey in Sydney, but as the product grew and the company took on more investment, the team started expanding. We've always liked to have a geographical you know, co-location. I think until about 15 people, they're all based here in Sydney. Our first office that we span up was in Manila in the Philippines. And it initially started out as a support center, but we began to see some amazing skill sets of people coming through. Now they deal with everything from design to support, business development, recruiting, a whole bunch of functions there. Um, we've also got another office in Beijing and another one in Wuhan, which has been experiencing hard times recently. Canva's Wuhan office is, of course, right in the epicenter of the COVID-19 coronavirus outbreak, and that created some challenges for their team. But the company has done everything they can to make sure their staff are safe. You know, we've just been trying to support our our staff there as much as possible. Uh, Everyone's working from home. Um, We've shipped them, uh, you know, medical supplies and a bunch of other stuff that we can uh, but we're just trying to get everyone to, to stay quarantined until it's passed and, and help them through that phase. When you talk about the sort of locations that you have um, your offices in, it's really interesting because it is very different from what you see in a lot of startup companies as they start to scale. You know, often we see companies just go, oh yeah, we're just going to open San Francisco and London and New York. But it sounds like it was a conscious decision to not go to those markets. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we were already seeing fantastic growth in the US market, so there was no need for us to go there. We could service it quite well from Sydney. Uh, There's also a whole bunch of baggage that comes with starting an office in San Francisco. You know, pay is insanely high there, loyalty is very low, employee churn is quite high. Um, So it is actually quite difficult to run an office there. So if you don't have to, why would you? How did you think about communication once you started expanding? How do you all communicate with each other? Yeah, it's been really tricky and we've learned lots over the years. Um, We do have lots of physical communication, bringing people into the same space. So way back when, we always used to get everyone together on a Friday and we had this thing called stand-up, which is kind of a perversion of what really is a stand-up in the agile sense but everyone in the company would come in 20 people and they'd all demo stuff that they'd done that week and we've kept that tradition going till today and it has broken at various stages so it is hard to do stuff over video conference to give people the limelight and the spotlight that they need but we've constantly been refining it and working on it and making sure that people are included and now our global stand-up has like four different video conference areas. We make sure there's different MC in different countries every time. And we really try to forge those bonds even through the distance. At the time of recording, Canva had 862 staff globally and the team is continuing to grow. By the end of 2020, Cameron says they'll have close to 1400 staff and that rapid scale introduces its own set of problems. You go through different phases and I think it's one of the things with startups that stuff's going to break constantly and you're constantly looking for where it is breaking and what needs to be fixed. Growth introduces a whole new spectrum of things that breaks. So the way that we've hired people has changed countless times. The way that we onboard them has changed countless times. So 
Coming into a company of 10 people is very different from coming into a company of 800 people. And now it can be rather a shock to the system because you're coming into this place that has 50 different teams all doing different things. You have to figure out where all the knowledge is stored, who owns what, who can help you with what. So we've worked really hard to make sure people feel comfortable coming in, they get all the resources they need. In the early days, it was pretty broken. We had quite a few people come in and just kind of throw up their hands because it was too hard to figure out all these bits and bobs. And when we realized that, we really focused on onboarding and made sure that we had good mentors, good sessions for onboarding that uh, explained to you the culture of the company, how to get things done, how to make decisions uh, for particular specialties, whether it was engineering or design, like helping them learn the ropes of the processes and how to submit code, how to get your designs reviewed, all this type of stuff. Uh, and now I think we get really great marks on our onboarding. And that, that just happens across countless areas. Even providing lunch for staff has broken countless times and we've had to rethink it and, you know, staff it up, get full kitchens, uh, stagger out when people come to lunch, all these different things. Right. Just to be able to support how many people that you have. Yeah. And, you know, this year we'll grow to over a 1,000 people. Projections are for like close to 1,400 people by the end of the year. And that's across countless different offices. Each person that comes along means we need extra desks, we need extra offices, uh, we need the people to support them as well. So you're constantly scaling these things and making sure that new people coming in are getting as good an experience as the people before them. Early on, often founders want to be involved in everything. Was there a point where you realized that maybe you need to just like step back and take a bit of a bigger picture on what your team was doing? Yeah, you do try to get involved with everything and have your part of the decision made. It does inevitably break. Uh, I think for me, I felt it around about probably 200 people, which is still quite big, but It was at that moment where we started building out the design team that I was heavily involved with. Um, We also had lots of product managers coming on. And yeah, I just felt it really hard, particularly for me to have contact with each person on the design team and actually influence them in a positive way rather than giving them a very cursory amount of my time. So at that stage, I kind of decided to step back from the design team and and went hunting for someone who could take the design team to the next level and help them grow and help nurture them and make them feel safe and trusted and impactful. Um, I managed to find that person. He's grown the team now to close to 30 people and has allowed me to step back, go to a higher level and think more holistically about where I want the company to be, where I want the product to be and what projects I particularly want to focus on. What have you learned as a leader um, through this process of going from tiny startup to a really large organization in eight years? My biggest personal learning, I think, is the amount of impact that you can have without doing something. So I got a lot of my values through building things with my own hands, crafting them, coding them, designing them, and seeing them rolled out into the world. And at the size of 800 people, you're just one person doing that. So the impact that you can have gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, And finding other ways to get value and to support Canva itself and to let Canva have the most impact has been the hardest for me. Um, So learning how to delegate, how to bring together new teams, how to set a vision for people that inspires them and pushes them to do great things. That has been the biggest thing I've learned along the way. As Canvas team has grown, the company has put a lot of focus into creating an effective culture, one which breeds creativity, collaboration, and makes the company unique. I think as an organisation, we focus a lot on the culture and making sure that people who come to Canva are empowered to do things themselves and to make change and to have an impact globally. Um, So we focus a lot on the culture, on the way that we build teams and the way that we support the people in those teams. From probably our second year, we, we launched Canva Pro with a team of about 20 people. And we began to notice that 
things were just starting to get broken. Like it's impossible to have a meeting with 20 people. Uh, it's impossible almost to have 20 people all have the same goal. Uh, so you end up with these people with different goals, needing to have different meetings, but still trying to maintain this cohesive team. Uh, and it just became impossible. We still managed to launch Canva Pro with that. Uh, but very quickly after that, we kind of halved the teams and split them into two so they could focus on two separate things. And we've done that repeatedly over and over and over. The tendency with product teams is for them to grow, for features to grow, for them to want to do more things and they'll bring in more engineers and more designers and more product managers. But every team gets to the size where it's just too big and you have to cut ties, cut them in half, figure out a set of goals that works for one half of the team, figure out a set of goals that works for the other half and make sure that each of those teams has just the right number of people on it, and just the right amount of resources to be able to do what they want to without being too blocked. Um, and that forms the foundations for a lot of our values. So empowering others is one of those values. Pursuing excellence is one of those values. Um, and setting crazy big goals is another of those values. And in order to do those things, you need really high-performing teams and high-performing individuals within those teams. So that's what we work on a hell of a lot. How important is it to signpost those values for the organization to make sure that your staff know what the mission is of the business? Super important. So I do the onboarding session for every cohort of people that comes in. Uh, every two weeks, we have a new batch of newbies that come into Canberra and, and begin to learn the ropes. And I run the culture and uh, values section that walks people through what our values are, but more importantly, how they're lived day to day and the decisions they've affected and the uh, outcomes that have come from them. Um, and I think it's really important to connect those two things because you can have your values that you stick on a poster on the wall and people learn off by heart but actually embedding it into the way they make decisions and the way they operate every day is the most important part. Are those values that you've had from the start or did you implement them along the way? Uh, I think they were instinctually part of us from the start, but not something that we explicitly realised. Uh, it wasn't until about our third or fourth year that we looked at the growth that we'd had and the number of people that had come in and wanted to figure out some unifying voice for those people and being able to set a direction that everyone agreed on and can move in concert with. So we took a step back, thought about what really mattered to us, how we made decisions, how product was built, how we'd organized the company, and distilled that down into a bunch of values. The first time that we gave it a go, I think we came up with like 12 different values that no one could ever remember. Um, we tried that for like six months. Um, and then we took a look at those 12 and we're like, okay, which ones do we really want to live by? And we distilled that down into six. And I think that's a manageable number and something that people can really connect with. And I think it attracts a lot of people to the company as well. When they see our values, it resonates with them and they feel like they can use those values to have a positive impact, not only on their lives, but all the customers that we serve and all the people that we touch around the world. Do you have any tips for other founders that are thinking about, you know, oh, we don't have any values, we don't have any mission for our business? Like, do you have any tips for them to come up with effective values that will suit those businesses? I think uh, we did a round of consulting with everyone in the company, so getting their thoughts around what attracted them to the company. And, you know, listening is a huge part of it because people will tell you what they think about the company through how they describe it, how they describe their teammates, how they describe working with other people. So you can kind of gather the underlying sense of what the culture is. There'll also be aspirational things that you'll have, like you want to make the most you know, company that does the most good in the world. Um, so you can have your aspirational values as well as the values that are actually lived by the company. You mentioned that when you were when you're at Google, um, part of the problem with you know sort of product development there was you had all of these teams that didn't talk to each other. As you're thinking about growing your business and you said you know when teams get too big you split them into smaller teams how do you make sure that communication amongst teams remains so that you don't end up in a similar situation where teams don't talk to each other yeah it's one of our trickiest problems and we're constantly thinking of new ways to forge communication amongst the teams 
Um, we're revamping our product process at the moment and looking about how we set goals and how those goals are communicated across the company to make sure that other people know that those are your goals and that you might have the same goal as someone else, so let's work together. So we've set up kind of formal processes like that. Uh, we also have kind of really informal but whole company involving processes. So we have this thing that we call a season opener every quarter. And it's this big event where the whole company gets together for a whole day. Each team gets to express what they've done in the previous quarter and what they're aiming to achieve for the next quarter. And it's a fantastic way for everyone in the company to get insight into what's happening across all of Canva, uh, be able to spot opportunities where they can help, um, opportunities where they might be able to move across to, or opportunities where they should be collaborating. And we turn into this big fun event that's often dress-upped. Uh, last December, we had our biggest one yet. We actually opened it to the public so they could see what was coming down the line with Canva. Um, we had it at Luna Park here, and it was like 800 people in the big top there, um, and it was all 1920s themed. That was probably the craziest event we've ever had, but extremely fun and I think really valuable for us to see everything that's going on, as well as all the external people coming in. Throughout their journey, Canva has raised a huge amount of capital from investors, almost 250 million US dollars. In October 2019, they closed their Series D round of 85 million, which valued the company at 3.2 billion US dollars. But how do you know when it's the right time to raise money? I think for us, it's the very first round we did was almost a matter of survival. Like you need money to pay yourself and pay for your food and pay for your mortgage. Um, since then, we've been really fortunate that we could think a bit more strategically about our investment rounds. So all the rounds after that, we haven't strictly needed them to keep the lights on or anything, but we look at who we're taking investment in, the timing of those investments, and how they play into our future plans. Um, so investment can be really good for getting attention put on you if you've launched a new product or you've got this new market that you're trying to enter. Um, having an investment round can be really great for getting press and marketing and attention on it. And you should also look at who you're getting investment from. Um, so when we made our move into China, we looked at having some local investors there because we knew that we'd need those contacts in there and their ability to help us set up the business in China. Um, so each investment round we've looked at through a different lens, most often through the attention that you get as well as it's also helpful for us to have new valuations for the company be set because it helps us put a milestone in and show our, ex our progress to external parties. Do you, do you think there is too much focus on raising money as opposed to being profitable as a business? Yeah, there is, I wouldn't say too much focus. There is... Uh, there is a tendency to write about valuations and changes in a company's value and being a unicorn is always an easy way to get a headline. But I don't think that means that you should swing the other way and purely focus on profitability. Uh, any growing company has to manage profitability at certain times over growth. Um, so it's not a given that profitable company is always the best thing to be doing at a certain point in time. I think definitely once you get to you know, being in the stock market and a listed company, things kind of change. That is one of the things that has been valuable about investors in the United States is they do think beyond that bottom line. And we have seen a lot of investors, you know, local investors be like, well, how quickly are you going to achieve profitability without thinking about the benefits of growth? So if you're looking at a funded company, but you still want them to be profitable, you have to ask yourself if that's the right model. Beyond looking at profitability, you need to look at the profit management of the company itself. And some people kind of use profitability as a proxy for that. But really what they're asking is, is the company being run in a well-managed way, which can mean that you're profitable, it can mean that you're not profitable, it just depends upon what you want to achieve with the company and making sure that it has a future to grow into. Canva now has more than 20 million active users across almost every country on earth. The team is growing rapidly and the product is constantly evolving. 
And given how far they've come, I wanted to know whether Cameron's perspective on design has changed during his time working on Canva. That's an interesting question. I think I have felt my perceptions about design change from something that was quite crafty, like something that I did as a person and which was a skill that I learned, to something that is a benefit that all people should be able to have. And I think the ability to design something is the ability to express yourself in the best way. And being able to give people a tool that lets them express their idea, communicate their vision, get in contact with people that they wouldn't be able to previously is the most powerful thing and I think is what the essence of design is and the essence of what value design can bring. Is there any projects that you've seen people create that are just like super fascinating that you've seen with Canva? Yeah, I've seen countless people like spin up their business with Canva, create the branding for it. Um, We found one person who was searching for her birth mother. She hadn't been in contact with her for, you know, tens of years, created a design in Canva and posted it at Facebook and managed to find her mother through that. It's like those very individual personal stories are amazing. I know one business owner down in Sutherland Shire here who has used Canva for most of her business's life and she's just like the uber Canva user. She designs swimwear and she uses Canva to design all their fashion tags. She uses it to design their photo shoot um, schedules. She even uses it for the little hygiene stickers that they put inside their swimwear. So the depths that people can push Canva to is amazing when you put it into their hands. When you look at where you've come from in the past eight years, how do you feel? Uh, Time has this weird way of contracting and expanding depending upon how you look on it. So when I say like eight years, that feels like a super long time compared to what we've done. But at other moments, it feels like a, a super short time. It's rare that you get everyone in the same room that you can kind of see the scale of what you've built. Um, So most days you're working with a particular team or you're having these meetings with particular people and you can kind of pretend that it's still 100 people. But when we have our season openers and when we have our all hands and you see the number of people and all the different things that they're working on, that's when I really sit back and just breathe in everything that we've achieved over the last eight years and it's a bit when you're confronted with that many people it it definitely makes you feel small and I think proud of what we've created Thanks to Cameron Adams for sitting down with me for this interview Building a Unicorn is a Lawson Media production. You can find out more about the show or get episode transcripts at our website, buildingaunicorn.com. This episode was hosted and scripted by me, Christopher Lawson, editing and mixing by James Parkinson. Our theme music is by Nick Buchanan and our artwork is by Andrew Millist. If you value the conversations that you're hearing on this podcast, then I encourage you to jump into Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. And we'd also love to hear about the startups you're building. Send us an email or voice recording to unicorn at lawson.media. We'll have some cool swag to give out to those of you who take the time. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Thanks for listening. Listener.